welcome to the Bardcast. It's Shakespeare, you dick. We are your hosts. <laughs> I have to do something to make it different. <laughs> I am Lisa Ann Goldsmith. And I am Owen Thompson. I am chuckling at the refined way you just read our crass name. <laughs> well, you know, if if I, you know, if I was saying in my class, in my dialects class, you know, the name it would be it's Shakespeare, you dick. So that's refined, I think. Yeah, it's very Maggie Smith of you. Thank you. Thank you. It's a fabulous compliment. Anyway, hi, y'all. Listen, we are super excited because as we were as we are recording this, we noticed that we have had our best day ever. That is not a drop day. We have had more downloads today than any other day ever that was not a drop day. And some days more than sometimes more than a drop day. That's right. So thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you to all of our listeners. We love you. We love you. Please write to us, write about us, talk to us, bring us into your homes, people. <laughs> <laughs> We're lonely and cold and there are wolves after us. Oh, <laughs> Anyway, right. we're digressing. We're digressing. But we're very excited today because we have, I think this is the most guests we've ever had on, on an individual podcast. We're having four people on, four very That's exciting right. people uh, to talk about what we call designing Shakespeare. Um, we have a lighting designer, we have a set designer, we have a costume designer and a sound designer. It's very exciting. That's right. And we know that they've all worked on Shakespeare. Um, mm -hmm. And we're we want to know how, I mean, Owen and I know as an actor and a director, but it would be really interesting to hear from a design point of view, like yeah, what the they design do. perspective. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 uh, and, and we've worked in one way or another, either Lisa Ann or I, or both of us have worked with all four. Um, we have the fabulous Nancy Nichols, who is our costume designer, and Rob Dutil, who is our set designer, both of whom actually, design, Nancy designed costumes and Rob designed the set when I directed All's Well That Ends Well a couple of years ago. And we also have Rich Curtis, uh, who is a lighting designer, who was the lighting designer for that Twelfth Night that Owen and I have mentioned that we did together. That's um, right. So and Rich has also designed lights for me on other non-Shakespearean shows. That's right. And Chris Buggy, who is also in Pittsburgh here, and he is a sound designer uh, based here. And we did um, the radio Christmas Carol together last year, the radio play that you heard, Owen. That's right. That's right. Which was fantastic. We love so that. That's, um, that's really interesting to have a sound designer to talk, to talk about the difference between uh, designing for theater and designing for uh, recorded things. That's right. That's right. And he does film and TV, too. So I'm sure he has a lot to say. Well, great. Why don't we have them on? What do you say? <laughs> and, and here we go. <laughs> <laughs> so welcome back. Here we have our four amazing guests. We are so grateful to all of you. Um, so let's start with let's start with Rob, because that's the square I looked at. Tell us a little bit about yourself. What do you want our listeners to know? <laughs> well, hello. My name is Rob Dutiel. I am a professor of theater at Marymount Manhattan College. I'm a combination technical director and scenic designer, equal parts both, depending on whether my romantic or classic side has been engaged. And <laughs> Shakespeare is really where I fell in love with theater. I was a high school teacher, went off one summer to because an acting instructor told me to and did a summer Shakespeare in Wisconsin. Uh, came back pretty much next year, quit my teaching job and just sort of adopted in a completely different lifestyle, all based on the relationships and the sort of understanding of humanity that came out of that one summer. It was really just a, a life changing experience for me. While Phantom of the Opera may have engaged a certain scenic design element of me, my love of theater really was rooted in Shakespeare from the beginning. We love you. You're one of our favorite people ever. And and, and Rob, I didn't I didn't know that about Wisconsin. So just as a, a mini digression, can I ask you where that was? Yeah, it was a Wisconsin Shakespeare Festival. So it wasn't Spring Green, even though we'd play softball against them every summer. Well, the House we on were, the Rock is the House on the Rock. Yep. Oh my that god. Area. Yep. That's that's the area I was at. Oh so my god! Was... Somebody else that has been through the House on the Rock. It's oh, so good to I see. Still have... My uh, my wife's um, mother lives there. My mother in law lives down uh, in uh, Mineral Points. So we were just there this summer. So, no, I my my theatrical heart actually starts in that particular area before it branched off into things like opera and rep theater and other stuff. But yeah, I, I when I think theater, when I think what I really love about theater, 
it's always back in that community in um, southwestern Wisconsin doing Shakespeare. Wow. Well, I just, it, it's so, I mean, I don't have a connection there, but right before lockdown, the last show that I did was uh, I, I directed a show in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, on the other side of the state. Uh, and, and I was there in January and February of, uh, of 2020. So yeah, it was, and I didn't have a car. So I was basically, I experienced lockdown before the lockdown. It was like a dress rehearsal. I was basically in a hotel room and then they would come and get me to go to rehearsal. And then they would take me back to the hotel room. And there I was in the freezing cold. So, but, but I love Wisconsin. I do love Wisconsin. And yeah, there's a good reason that nine months after those two months, is, that's when the babies are born. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Although not if you're by yourself. Cheese. Fair enough. <laughs> Excellent cheese in Wisconsin. Yes. It yes. Is. And beer. Okay, oh. that's true. Um, let's move on to uh, Chris Buggy, as we call him. Yes, um, I uh, originally started doing theater at the age of 13, um, and I graduated Point Park University in Pittsburgh with a degree in technical theater and design, and uh, have been doing that ever since. I also work in the film industry in Pittsburgh. Uh, it's quite a booming um, industry here, and uh, I do that in the summer usually, and then sound design mainly uh, during the winter months because I don't like filming in the cold, to be honest with you. <laughs> Who can I blame you? I blame you. Buggy, when did you graduate Point Park? Uh, 2014. So oh, I've been wow. uh, in the city designing sound for probably six or seven years now. Um, I mainly work with... Oh. oh. This is ironic. <laughs> <laughs> you did we've that just on lost purpose. we've just lost the sound designer's sound somebody call alanis morissette <laughs> isn't it ironic <laughs> well oh yep are we getting you back we can fix this in post people yeah i can edit this Okay. You know, I have to say, because Buggy, you can listen. The one thing I edit all of our podcasts. And so I've learned so much about sound editing since we started doing this. That's amazing. It's a, I mean, it's a skill I had to cultivate. One, two. Basically. One, two. Yes, we can hear you. Yeah, you're back. We can there, hear right? you now. There, there we go. Is. Sorry, I lost my other microphone. Had to get this one going. Uh, always a game of black magic when it comes to sound work uh, I like to say because uh, when it when it comes to lighting designs and whatnot if a light drops out you can always you know see which light has stopped functioning you can see the lamp or you know the electricity has stopped but when it comes to sound it's just a matter of guessing and trying to figure out what is the problem is it a cable is it a mi the microphone is it the power it, it's it's uh, a constant battle of running through 200 problems that could have happened so I'm glad that I had this on backup well yay um, Nancy. Uh, I started out as an actor. Uh, I did it for 30 years in the regional rep circuit. Uh, I put myself through college working in costume shops because I could sew and they always needed that. And I learned quite a bit about it there. And as my kids were getting older and I went back to a desk job to earn the bucks to keep that rolling, I found that I had some time on my hands and costuming seemed like an easy way to fit that in and so I got back to it through that and uh, it's been very inspiring. Um, I love working with the young interns who come in and want to learn more about it um, especially since I have to tell them look I'm I'm not your usual college educated costume designer. Uh, first of all I can't draw at all so everything has to be kind of done in a conversation with the director or chats with the actors about what they want to accomplish. So, um, but Shakespeare is uh, very near and dear to my heart. And uh, it's a, a big thrill to get up there and do that every year. Yeah, Nancy has, Nancy has a, ver a very impressive catalog of, of Shakespeare under her belt as an actor as well, it needs to be said, uh, as well as a costume designer. I just want to give you that shout out and those props. Thank, well, thank you. I, I was extremely disappointed when I was 15. I was cast as Puck at a local community theater and the production died. And I just was so depressed. I went into a funk for several months and I thought, well, that's it. I'm never going to get to do punk. But luckily I got to do Puck later. Uh, so it wasn't all wasn't lost. And Rich, hello. 
Hello, Rich Curtis. Um, yeah, I'm an associate professor at Hofstra University, um, uh, where they've given me the title of director of lighting. Um, but I also teach, um, I teach sound and I do sound design in addition to lighting design. Um, I, uh, I'm also in charge of the stage management program at Hofstra. Um, I'm a member of Actors' Equity, uh, working mostly as a stage manager. And um, I uh, do a lot of Shakespeare because Hofstra has a annual Shakespeare festival, um, which is um, one of the oldest in the country. We're, we're going on 70 years wow. uh, now. Oh, um, wow. I haven't been there for 70 years, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> well, clearly. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so we, um, I've done an awful lot of Shakespeare. And uh, that's my story. And of course, Lisa and Lisa Ann and I often talk about the production of Twelfth Night that we did together in Oklahoma uh, uh, several years ago. I won't say how many. And Rich worked on that production as well. Mm -hmm. wow. I was the technical director and the lighting designer. And it's also uh, where I met my wife. That's right. That's right. Who Please. was the director of that, director. that production? So it's all very incestuous. <laughs> Tech directors and directors canoodle. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> well, Twelfth well, Night was where I brought uh, uh, Owen into hip to hip to play Sir right. Toby Belch. And that was oh, a, a yeah. high point of that production for me personally, because I was playing Mariah. But that's to, right. to do scenes with Owen. That was, was a lot of fun. Nice. That was that was in my former life as an actor. Oh, uh, former life. You were fun. I was going to say, the interesting so thing about Twelfth Night was because um, it was outdoors. And I always warn people when I do outdoor productions now is every single outdoor production I've ever worked on, it rains during Tech Week. Um, <laughs> that is true, isn't it? And, and we had to, um, we finished the, the lighting design um, at five in the morning um, before opening night. Um, and, and there's nothing, there's nothing that'll motivate, uh, a, a designer and director to get some cues written when you're in fifth, the fifth act of a show <laughs> and the sun is coming out and you cannot do anything to turn the house lights off. Yeah. God, that's, that's like the opposite of we're burning daylight. Yeah. Oh, right. <laughs> right. So that's, you know, that actually, that's a really good way to, to kick off one, uh, one of the questions that we have for pretty much everybody. Um, so actually, you know, we had, an, we had a whole episode devoted to doing Shakespeare outside, but it's true. I think Shakespeare probably gets done outside more than any other author. So do you guys think that, that designing for Shakespeare in general is different than designing for uh, contemporary plays or, or other plays or musicals or what have you? Uh, and and how does that how does that work for you? What is what is the difference like? If anyone wants to take that, Rob, maybe. And I'll start, but it's it's fundamentally similar. The issue is the cultural context of understanding the backstory, your your exposition, mm -hmm. and trying to figure out ways scenically or graphically, visually to support the text in a way that those questions that would take the audience out of the moment to draw them back in, to, to reaffirm the director's vision in a way that prov provides a unified view, which is, you know, all design anyway, but with Shakespeare in particular, because since, you know, I'm sensitive to it, having students recently tell us like, why does anyone care about him? He's dead. They're much more interested in, I think, TikTok now, but when we look at the actual, the context of those characters as living, breathing people in time. And the sort of universal themes that don't ever change. When I'm designing, I try to focus on those more than necessarily specific period detail. I'm trying to find those broad human things that my 18-year-old seemingly disconnected Gen Z culture will find attractive. Mm. And so while the process is the same, I think there is a little bit more attention that I pay to how do I make the relatable universals apparent? Mm -hmm. How mm -hmm. can I accentuate them or how can I emphasize them in a way that doesn't detract from the story, but helps the story have a good foundation or a framework to live within that keeps people away from their phones? So that's yeah. actually that that actually is one of the questions we wanted to ask was how do you think your design can help an audience to better understand the language in the play because it's not modern day speak, right? So that sort of speaks exactly to what you were just saying. So how do you think that that's part of it that 
you find that your work has to be almost more specific to help the the audience get a handle on the language? Yeah, the, the Shakespearean language, of course, Shakespeare had exposure to so many different walks of life. And the fact that his father was a glover led him to understand all kinds of things about treating leather. It led him into other walks of life because he knew about uh, being a soldier and, and a financier. God only knows where all this came from, but um, his, his, his characters are each lovingly crafted. They're each given very specific points of view. And if you take the time to absorb that as a, as a costume designer, and you talk to the director, you talk to the actor, you can tease out ways that you can personify that in what they're wearing. And of course, in that era, if you're doing it historically, uh, it was a time when dress was literally legislated. You were not allowed to dress above your station to make yourself fancier than you were. Unless, of course, if you were an actor, because you had to have your own costumes. Uh, there was no costume designer. There was no wardrobe shop. Every actor came with a big trunk full of stuff that he had collected over a lifetime. Props, costumes, music instruments, rapiers, and fleshed out what he had. So today, well, it's kind of like what we do when we go into the rental house, because we don't know what we're going to find. But uh, the, the specifics of what they are wearing can um, help to illustrate what they're saying. The language itself may be foreign, but the way they look, the way they behave in their clothes um, is pretty universal, I think. Yeah. Nancy, you know what? You and I were, when we were emailing back and forth a little bit, Nancy and I were talking about uh, the sumptuary laws. And that's a, that's a topic that we haven't gotten into that much on the podcast, no, but it's, it's really, really, really interesting. And I've been meaning to, to talk about it. So um, Nancy, do you want to talk, just let people know what the sumptuary laws were? Well, I don't have a lot of factoids at my fingertips here, but basically it was a way of freezing the stratification of society. It meant that you could illustrate in what you wore on your body, who was, who was upper class and who was not. And God forbid you should cross the line. In the same way, God forbid you should cross the line of behavior, of you know, responding with respect to your elders or to someone who was higher born than you. Hey, Nancy, could you give could you give us an example of like something that you would never wear if you were a, a uh, yeah a well station? Yes, yes. For instance, uh, black was hugely expensive. Black dye was very difficult to maintain in a, in a costume. So it meant if you wore a black outfit, holy crap, you were really wealthy, um, or you were very well connected. But there were in the laws they said, for instance, you had to be an earl to wear certain fabrics or certain colors. Uh, you weren't allowed to wear certain kinds of uh, fur trim on your garments if you weren't above a certain station. Um, this is, I should have the factoids at my fingers and I promise you, oh, and well, no, but this is, oh, no, 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 but, the, but this, no, this, is, it, this, is exactly, yeah. this is exactly what I wanted people to hear because right. it, it also speaks to like why theater was considered so dangerous by so many people in Shakespeare's time, because there was that fluidity of dress on the stage that wasn't allowed outside of the playhouse. Not to mention the fluidity of gender, of course, but, you know, because you have men playing women and all of that. But there, you also have actors who are on the very lowest rung of society oh, yeah. who are who yeah. outside the theater were literally like it would be they would be breaking the law to dress as a nobleman or, God forbid, a king. And, and yet there they are. They did. They, they right. took a stroll in their costume. That's exactly and they got right. Their asses arrested, you know. So. Mm -hmm. and, and the most valuable possession of theater companies was their collection of wardrobe, which was often purchased from the nobility. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, yeah so it's a it's have. a it's a really important topic. We do, we don't need to go all the way down the rabbit hole, but thank you, Nancy, okay. for sure, talking about sure. that. Yeah. yeah, love it. Um. So so yeah, I mean. Well, actually, how, how about this? Do you, do you guys, because I think it was Rob that mentioned 
um, the idea of, of designing for productions that are traditionally in the period of Shakespeare, like a like a, a Renaissance costumes and that sort of thing. Without it what, being set in a specific right. area or something. What, what differences do you find there are uh, designing whatever it is that you design for a, a traditional in-period production as opposed to like a modernized or, or concept production? How does that affect your, your process or what do you prefer? Anyone? Well, Chris? I don't know what I prefer, but I can, I can give an illustration of uh, something that's happened to me recently. Because, um, you know, as Rob was saying, um, most of the time designing for the lights for something really depends on the, the, the director's concept, the, what the team has come up with for the show and what's appropriate. Um, but, you know, you mentioned uh, doing something more in keeping of the time period or something like that. Um, Hofstra just recently revamped, Hofstra has a, um, a, a globe stage recreation that we, that we regularly put up in our, in our um, proscenium theater. And we recently revamped it because the one we had was uh, based upon very old and now disproven research. Um, so we did a new one and, and I'm told by the people that tell you things, uh, that it's one of the most accurate uh, representations uh, of the globe stage uh, in North America. That's what I'm told. But the point of the story is, is that when we first put it up five or six years ago, we had it in our heads, let's put it up and try to treat it as if it was Shakespeare's time, which meant there was no, he didn't have, you know, lighting. He didn't have, they did it in the afternoon when it was uh, the daylight. So, we're inside of a building. Um, so I had to figure out a way in which we could do that. One, one was we didn't turn the house lights down. Um, we just had kind of daylight type of lighting. The problem is when you do that, um, the lighting does change for people when they're outside. Clouds go over, it starts at two in the afternoon, it's sun moves across the sky to four in the afternoon or five in the afternoon. Um, and when you're indoors, if you just have the lights on all the time, all those variations in lighting that would happen naturally outdoors don't happen. And there's all kinds of psychological things that go on in your brain when you're just staring at the same thing lit the same way all of the time. You lose focus or you get, um, you get color burn in. All of these things happen to make you stop paying attention to what's happening on stage. So when we did this, I had to do a bunch of tricks that the audience wouldn't see to kind of make sure that they paid attention to what was going on stage. Uh, one of which was, while the audience thought that the house lights never changed, they actually did. I dimmed the house lights down to 50% over the course of 30 minutes at the top of the show. And they slowly realized, they, 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 they slowly were starting looking at the stage because that was the brightest point in the room, but didn't realize that that's the main reason lighting wise that they were doing that. And then of course, coming out of the first act or whatever, before we had intermission, I would do a 10, 15 minute slow fade back up to full light so that by the time intermission came, they were like, oh, the lights are all the same. And then we decided on a version of Hamlet, we did this twice, um, what time of day we were gonna start and where the sun was. And I slowly I shifted over the course of the two acts where the brightness of the light was coming from, where the warmth of the light was coming from. At one point in the act, one time when we were doing Hamlet, we were, me and the director were getting kind of bored. And I said, how about if I program a cloud going over? So I had a shadow go across the stage that unless you were looking for it, you didn't know it was there, but it, 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 it was able to give some visual contrast and variety for the audience to not have their brains get sick of just looking at the same thing burned into their retinas. So it just had to reset the rods, basically that, because it's almost <laughs> like you're talking about like psychoacoustics, your interesting yeah. perspective on how to manipulate the visually, because I know about color fatigue and, and contrast fatigue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Color, that's that's very yeah. subtle, but clever. Um, yeah, because color fatigue is also a big problem that you have to worry about as a lighting designer, especially when you're not changing the lights up. Um, mm. And so, yeah, so we were doing all these little tricks to, um, you know, and I, I always quizzed my lighting class afterwards, you know, how many cues do you think there were in the show? And, you know, like they would say maybe two or three. And I, you know, for, uh, <laughs> for Hamlet in particular, because we did, we did the cloud and we did this, I had 
over the course of the show, 50, 60 light cues, um, but, well, but nobody it, saw them. Exactly. And if so, if the answer, if they answer you two to three, I mean, obviously you want them to be more aware, but if, if that's the audience's answer, that you've done your job. I've done my job. And that's an audience that's looking for it. Right. Yeah. Right. That's Specific, right? specifically that's, tasked to look that's for That's very it. well crafted. Yeah. That's amazing. I wish I'd seen it. Sounds great. That's tricky when you're looking at trying to do a virtual recreation of a period piece from what we understand about it in competition with current cultural need for, I don't want to use appropriation because that word is malign, but to contextualize it in a, in a contemporary way, I mean, what do we owe the past in a specific recreation? Because I just, when you were talking, I pulled up an image of the Hofstra globe. A lot of excellent detail on that facade. That's really pretty. Uh -huh. Really a lot wider than I would have expected too. But it's, are, do we, what's our responsibility as designers having to play up to the stereotypes that our audiences come in with? Theatrical stereotypes of, you know, we're in another resurgence of spectacle theater. It's not the Andrew Lloyd Webber Starlight Excess era, but it's, you know, it's another, we're in another period, maybe not now after the pandemic. I'm not sure what it'll be, but of, of spectacle, spectacle excess. So is it effective for us to design purely period pieces? Actually, what I should say is, how did the audience receive those shows, Rich? That's what I should ask someone who did it. Well, they, well, they received them, I think, quite well. Um, I did. We did get a, more than more than uh, normal people complaining about. They didn't like the lights on in the house the whole time. They, you know, they liked the uh, the fact that the lights would go down. They knew a theatrical event was was happening. Um, and but what I can I could probably answer that better by saying, in contrast, that we just did um, uh, the Scottish play uh, last month. And we did it completely different. We decided to do it completely, quote unquote, theatrical. And um, our director thought to himself, we're, he was convinced he was doing it, period, in that um, if Shakespeare was alive today, he would play with all the toys he had available to him. Oh, okay. So, so the idea that the audience there was seeing the current technology when they went to see a show that was contemporary for them. So we wanted to do a contemporary piece in that we would use the current technology. So we, we, um, we pulled out the heavens because one of the problems with, if you're looking at the picture of that, it's very hard to light because most of the light needs to come from the front, which doesn't lend to, to sculpting and molding and all of that fun stuff that you learn in lighting class. Um, so we pulled the heavens out and put in light pipes up there so that I could put lights up there I, uh, we used footlights. I hid moving lights behind the columns. Um, and we did uh, all kinds of, LED, with LEDs these days, you could all do kinds of crazy colors. Um, we had, you know, a lot of fun colors in the dream sequences and, you know, the, the um, um, out damn spot sequence and all of that stuff. And, and we just went crazy and made, it, made, made the most interesting lighting we could. And the response that I got was overwhelmingly positive. I can imagine. I'm not sure if that answers the question, but I think it's no, because it sounds that's, like that's a rock show. Yeah, it's my own experience. Well, they want something more, no. they don't want it to be dead Shakespeare no more than he did, or any one of the time would have. It has to this period sort of reinvention using technology of the I think the way you stated it was much more eloquent than anything I could come up with, but he himself would have used every tool available to make it the most effective production possible. Uh, and of course, of course he would. And it makes me think, I'm, I'm sure some of you saw these as well. A few years ago when Mark Rylance was here doing uh, Twelfth Night and Richard III in rep with that all-male company. And I mean, those those plays had originated at Shakespeare's Globe. And by the way, I pulled up the Hart, the Hofstra Globe as well. It looks amazing. And it, 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 looks, a, it looks quite a bit like Shakespeare's Globe. Um, but those productions, which I saw on Broadway, you know, there, there sure was sophisticated lighting. And even though it wasn't, they were trying to be as uber, like shape, more Shakespeare than Shakespeare as possible with an all-male cast and all the, you know, contemporary, Shakespeare contemporary uh, costuming and all, and set and all of that. But clearly they had not decided to divest themselves of modern day stage magic, not at all. And they were miked. <clears throat> Which right. only helps the storytelling. 
So yeah. So Buggy, yeah. you've done a bunch of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, Merchant of Venice, Midsummer, As You Like It, Macbeth, The Tempest. What's what's your take on it, man? I uh, wonder if you know. I was thinking about this, uh, not to cut you off, but I was thinking, how would they? What would they have done for Sound of the Globe? Right? It would have been basically Foley. Uh, well. To begin with, actors would have known how to project, which is one of my biggest pet peeves in this industry nowadays. It's not something that yeah. a lot of young yeah. actors. Mine too. It's it. It absolutely kills me. Microphones shouldn't be there to make you loud. They're there to enhance your natural voice. Agreed. Um, yeah. So that that would have been right from the get-go the first thing that would have been different from what we do uh, another would have been live music i mean uh, i very seldom unless i'm doing a musical do i have a band on stage i mean even if they would have had music and the instruments that they would have been using uh would have been you know a lyre a lute uh, a lot of woodwinds um something more contemporary than instead of you know an electric guitar that we would have nowadays that can do acoustic electric it's got all sorts of different you know bells and whistles on it uh you could use a keyboard nowadays that has everything under the sun programmed into it just the amount of ease and accessibility that we have nowadays that we take for granted absolutely staggers me some days it truly does yeah, it's it, it is amazing the the things that are out there, and and speaking of speaking of technology, this is something that Lisa Ann and I were were wondering about, and this could be Shakespeare, it could be not Shakespeare. Both Lisa Ann and I have started this, obviously this podcast, but also we did a bunch of Shakespeare readings during the pandemic, mm-hmm. just to basically keep ourselves from going insane. Uh, that Sunday. came we came to call we them Shakespeare Sundays. Sunday. We've talked about it a lot. Um, and, and so I wonder if you guys have had any projects, Shakespeare or otherwise, design projects during the pandemic and, and how that has played out for you guys. Rob? Yeah, we, well, my, my colleague, Mark Ringer, who also um, shared love, actually, I met him in Wisconsin before ah. I knew him and in, in, that I'd be teaching with him. He and I, every couple of years, do a special topics and do a deep dive of either Shakespeare or more specifically with me, some of the Greek theater. And so we've done a few, we've done the Bacchae, Euripides Bacchae. We just did an Antigone and that one was all virtual. And that was our first foray. And this sort of like what Lisa was talking about with sound. I am not a person that likes to do video. I don't do video. I've never had any interest in video. I like to touch things with my hands and manipulate the material with my hands. And all of a sudden in order to provide the support visually we had to delve into the creation of realities in a completely different medium while not losing our minds, while trying to maintain a certain morale. And what we did, what was successful for us, we just trusted the students who are all digital natives. I'm an analog native. Um, I'm much more comfortable with the analog soundboard than I am with any programming of a digital board. But they all respond to it instinctively. And yet we're at the same time, this was interesting with, I'm not sure how you discovered with the podcast, they're also, they were tired of it. So it was both unique yeah. and, and fun. And they were willing to do all kinds of extra work and work with programs that I, I dabbled in After Effects. Not something I, Vectorworks is, I, I love Vectorworks, but I get into After Effects. It's some stuff you do, I guess. But for them, it became an artistic extension of their desire to storytell and to support their characters. And so we let them kind of really develop the visuals in the background. And some of them were animated and some of them were stills. We had one person that was doing, they never finished it, um, motion capture, multi-cell wow. drawing motion capture. I think they misunderstood how long it would take to do that well. And Mark and I are like, we don't know. Let's just play with it because it's a pandemic and we want to make stuff. So <laughs> it, it was as an experiment that didn't have a performance other within the class and the school. It worked really well as a way of us tapping into our desire to create, but using a medium that was uncomfortable, but available. And it's not gone away. Now they continue to do it, but now they want to bring it back onto the stage somehow. Um, so it's, it's actually developed some of our students have a secondary interest in projection and visual design that they never would have touched in the past because of the necessity of having the desire to make things in the pandemic. So kind of a silver lining in a way, like stretching people and the stretching kids and, and leading them to something creative that they might not otherwise have found. Yeah, and it was really critical throughout all of it to realize I don't have to be the expert. I have to encourage them 
to have agency in the creation. Same thing that when I was first doing Shakespeare, I had a really good mentor that's like, just try it, just do this and Mm -hmm. gave enough, enough latitude to really explore. And without saying thou art that they, they were able to, to, to make something that for them, you know, Antigone is a story that they read in spark notes. It's really dead to them. They, they did come up with things that were rather remarkable, unpolished, but with definite potential. It's like, wow, you've got vision now. And that was, that was amazing to see because then it adds to my own design world, a landscape sure. of design that I, I, I would not normally ever think of that, but now I, you can't unsee it. So now right. it's like new tricks. My my actual only like equity job during the pandemic was doing the picked radio play of Christmas Carol that uh, Buggy was the sound designer and I guess recording engineer, right? That was crazy. Do you, can you describe to these guys what you guys built in the middle of the Mr. Rogers studio? Yeah, it was um, a four compartment recording booth, essentially that uh, it formed an X and in each segment of the x there would be uh an actor with a microphone and just uh a script in front of them essentially and me and the stage manager got together in the weeks prior to this and set up a schedule of okay we have these four people for this time slot uh how much of their lines can we get recorded and with christmas carol there's such a large ensemble and lisa ann made up a good portion of the voices for that <laughs> ensemble sure did. so <laughs> I, she was she was brilliant throughout the entire thing absolutely brilliant um but the process God, they, sorry sorry um yeah crazy is a great word for it because i mean we had two weeks to get the entirety of Christmas Carol recorded with only being able to bring in four people at a time because of spacing constraints of COVID. So we could only have a certain amount of people in the room. So the, the uh, scheduling of what we could record, I mean, there, there was some days where we would record three lines in one entire scene with all of the Cratchits, because that was the only person that we had there. And we weren't, wouldn't be getting, getting them for another, you know, six, seven days. So oh. we were piecemealing and recording the entire script of Christmas Carol. By the end of those two weeks, I think I had somewhere around 2,000 recordings, uh, individual recordings of every single line. Uh, I mean, some of those were, you know, multiple takes and whatnot, but I had, that was still 2,000 files I had to go through to sure. stitch together the entire show. That's the incredible. The cool thing about yeah. it, though, was that we could see each other. Oh, there was plexiglass in the X? each other, yeah. to, to act okay. with each other. Yeah, we we made sure to put up plexiglass and then uh, we insulated around it with fabric so that nothing can get in and out, obviously. And then we left the top open so that the HVAC system could still uh, scrub the air while the actors were in there. But they could still see each other and have that, you know, in-person react and response with acting. We we ended up doing a lot of crazy workarounds for pandemic uh, considerations. Um, We did a version... Part of our Shakespeare Festival, we also do a one-hour version of something uh, that we tour to high schools. Well, obviously, we couldn't tour. So last year, we did a one-hour uh, version of Hamlet uh, done as a film noir nice. um, that we filmed. And um, part of the reason we did it as a film noir was because, well, a couple of considerations. All of the um, monologues or close-ups, we, had, we sent a, uh, a camera and a lighting rig to all the dorms of the actors so they could have the director on Zoom and they could talk into the camera and do their pieces and record them so that we could edit them in. But then the film noir thing that I mentioned, when we had to do things where people were together, we could put a shadow across their face to hide their mask. We could have their backs to the cameras or we could have lots of fog. Um, so we, we did all of these things to hide the fact that we had to have people in mass and not near each other. Um, and then we also learned all of that stuff that Rob was talking about. Um, I had to learn, I was doing uh, lighting and sound for this and I had to learn how to do all of that stuff. We had to learn things like how to broadcast live on Twitch. Um, or Discord. <laughs> Discord, yeah, there's another one. Yep, all of that stuff. So StreamYard. Yeah, it was a crazy time, but we were we were we learned a lot that I don't want to use again if I don't have to. Um, but but it was hey, Rich, great. And, hey, Rich, we... you don't know this. You don't know this, but when I was in grad school uh, at the same school, I was a I got my MFA buggy in two thousand eight from Point Park, and I asked them if I could take lighting design, 
And they were like, well, you need to, you know, you need all the information first. And I was like, well, my job in college was, you know, working on the Fine Arts Center tech staff. They were, I was like, ask me anything. So they did. And they were like, all right, you can take lighting design. And the first day of class, um, the teacher said, I said, what do I have to do to get an A? And he said, I've only given one A in my life. And I was like, well, be prepared because I did indeed get an A. Thank you very much. And so now, Rich, the point is that now all that shit that you used to talk about and I was like, can this happen? Now I understand why it can or can't. Very good. Yay. No, it's really. Ed- edumacation works sometimes. It does. <laughs> get it wrong, though. It's never. It's probably. We don't, we don't give grades. We record what you earn. We don't give them. They're not awards. <laughs> They're evidence-based <laughs> process. <laughs> So, yeah, so well, any- Rob and Go. I both uh, last summer, of course, this is not the, the steamy height of 2020's pandemic, but this was sort of the rolling after effects. We finally got the call from hip to hip saying, uh, okay, we're up. We can do it. One uh, day. We're gonna- One day. And initially, yeah, initially really? we were talking about Twelfth Night. And so I was like, great, I'm on board with that. This will be the, I don't know what number, 12th nights. And, and I, I think, I think I'm, I'm all right with that. And uh, Rob, I don't know what your understanding of it was. I was invited to a meeting. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know what the shows were. I had no idea what my capacity would be. It's just like, show up. Like, I like these people. I'll show up. Right. And then it's like, oh, <laughs> so it's like, you're designing the two shows. Like, which Who? ones are they? Because no one's told me yet. <laughs> Oh my God. And then they added Anthony and Cleopatra, and I thought, well, that's it. I'm fucked because I I, I've only got enough bandwidth to do one show. But thankfully, my brilliant co designer from previous seasons, Sarah Constable, wanted to do Anthony and Cleopatra and was so excited. She didn't care how short the timeline was. Well, I think she cared, but not at first. So, yeah, it was. As long as we didn't have to spend another summer in the heat box, everything was going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. here's a question for you. Um, do you, especially because like Rob, you went and you're like, you're designing these two shows. Well, yeah. what are they, you know, what were you hoping for? So do you guys, all of you have a preference between designing tragedy, comedy, or history when you are designing a Shakespeare play? No, for um, me, it's the people I work with. The shows are awesome. Um, there's always shows I want to do that I haven't, I've never been allowed to do a Titus yet. I would love to do a Titus. You and um, me both, brother. In the Grand Guillot. I want to actually do Grand Guillot Titus. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, but you, but we, we, you, you need to have sufficient uh, laundry capabilities. Oh, yeah. See, that's something the scenic doesn't. Mm. Seriously? I I, and I learned, I learned that the hard way, man, because I produced the Revengers tragedy years ago, and oh, yeah. which is one of my favorite Shakespeare contemporary plays. And we wanted to do it as bloody as possible because, duh. Yeah. And so, you know, we, we did, but then we quickly learned that we did not have the sufficient capacities on an off-off-Broadway budget to be cleaning the blood out of the, the linen every damn night. Yeah. Well, it depends on the linen. Oh, and we found that out with Julius Caesar. Some of my togas passed through the line. You, you mint night to night. You did not see anything, nothing there. And then some of the other ones, usually the nicer, better quality fabrics sucked up that red dye like nobody's business. So, but you know, you know what? Also, some speaking of like the things that you learn, necessity being the mother of invention, because we couldn't do a lot of blood in that production, we found workarounds that actually were better. Like, um, I was. I was initially stabbed to death as Lucurioso by Patrick Lawler, who some of you know, and that was fine. But when we couldn't have blood anymore, we had to figure out a different way. So he ended up snapping my neck and we, and we, and which was even cooler. And we just snuck a plastic water bottle onto the throne that I was on when he killed me. And when he snapped my neck, I would just twist the plastic bottle like where nobody could see it. And it made this horrifying noise. <laughs> now that's and it, and I thought you were going to say you wet your pants. <laughs> <laughs> now, you know what? Didn't think, no, but if you twist, if you twist an empty, like, you know, Avion bottle, it makes a horrifying sound, like a <laughs> sound. So, and the audience would audibly gasp. It was so much better than stabbing. Right. <laughs> it's much harsher, certainly. Yeah, oh, yeah. definitely. Yeah, uh, I, I like them all. I mean, I, I love comedy because 
then you can pull out the stops with color and line and, you know, uh, they're usually down and dirty and explicit. So you can show a little skin, uh, but, uh, and, and history's super, you know, I use my, uh, my old uh, uh, team colors. So that you track who's who, who's on which side, who's got which banner. Um, it's uh, that helps tell the story well, too. It's all well, yeah. Yep. Especially if you've got actors who are running on stages, you know, Ross one minute, and two seconds later they've got to come on as the doctor or whoever they're doubling, and uh, it helps to if you have real distinct silhouettes and colors and all that good stuff. I guess I would have to lean toward tragedies. Um, I, I, I can do any interesting lighting for just about anything, but it, it tends to be that when I work on tragedies, especially with Shakespeare, the directors uh, seem to be more willing to go to the crazy lighting places that I want to go to when we're talking about, about killing people. Ah, uh, um, see, that just means you're black in your soul. That's why you like the tragedy. No, he's purging it. He's purging the vitriol. Which is why we had it. him on the podcast. Ah. <laughs> You know, turn it a Dexter if he purges it. And, and, you know, and may go back to may explain why in the eighties my favorite music was 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 goth and industrial. So it's <laughs> like ministry. Are you talking like yeah, yeah, my too. <laughs> this is not. This is a Shakespeare podcast, not a skinny puppy podcast, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> Yeah, I would, the skinny puppy version of Shakespeare might be interesting. Sure. How, well, how about the Gigi Allen version? That's what I want to see. And well, that now we're oh, going G. down G. another. Oh, going oh off gosh. topic. <laughs> oh. Ask a question, Owen. <laughs> yeah. So, so do you guys do do you guys have any? Uh, uh, do you want to share like any experience that was particularly fulfilling designing Shakespeare, or uh, and or like really bad? Like any really good or bad? Yes, Rob, you raise your oh, hand. I love yes. the bad yes. ones. They're fun. Oh, the bad. <laughs> My very first professional Shakespeare design, I was doing an Antony and Cleopatra, and I was hired by the producer specifically to provide something that was considerably more traditional or at least Shakespeare-esque for the people of Southwestern Wisconsin than the previous year, which was an industrial um, design of steel and mostly steel. The director for ANC had seen the designs we had done for the previous year and thought that that was the unit set. I had sent drawings, I had sent pictures of the model, everything had been approved, and I was hired with the specific command by the producer, you'll do this, no steal. And so the very first day we show up, we start getting into this, there's a, there's a disagreement in the design process where all of the designers have started to come up with something that's more traditionally Shakespearean for A and C, and the director wants the Road Warrior Beyond Thunderdome. And no joke, and, oh it, it, up, and it was getting increasingly tense. And and we're like, I would come in to rehearsals and find out that the director had gone to the shop and found chunks of random pieces of sharp, pointy metals, rusty metals, which I'm not sure where they got those from. And machinery. And it's like you brought the motor, the replacement motor for the table saw. Why is that on stage? That is not Egyptian. That says Delta. I don't know what's going on here. And so we ended up in this meeting with all the designers. All of us have provided things that are more as per what the producer was paying us for. And I said, just in the meeting, you are no longer allowed to touch anything without approval you can't haul things we have a discussion but you can't grab things and put them on stage stage manager's concerned about safety but the costumer stood up and said you need to cut the shit <laughs> just did they're both the director and the costumer were formidable female presences and i'm in between them and they're starting to right. physically go at it have an oh actual almost brawl over whether or not we're doing beyond thunderdome or anc with romans and egyptians and i've never been a particularly tiny person For those of you that have met me in person I'm fairly i don't realize that I'm, I'm wide but i am but i was dwarfed by these two titanesses and I've, I've never in my career even in opera when some diva behaviors were happening been in a position where we're arguing over physically arguing over the presence of scenic design and costume design on stage. Oh. It was, it was, 
it was crazy. And it, she persisted throughout the whole show of trying to add chains and things to the set, but they didn't make any sense. It was, it was such a bizarre mismatch of, of producer and directorial intention. Very odd. But, you know, it was an interesting moment, physical crushing moment. <laughs> what, was the, what was the outcome? I mean, did it, did, what, what happened? Who won? Um, I would say that they found a detente of no one won. And the costumer ended up adding pieces of tire to the costumes. She actually started decorating what was Roman with rubber tires. The Egyptian was, it had elements of steel mesh that were added to it that didn't make a whole lot of sense because it wouldn't have been chain mail anyway. Um, There was a compromise made there, but scenically we were done with the work. There was nothing we were doing. And we were also, because, you know, we're doing three shows um, none of the other shows needed anything representing the steel structure that she wanted. So there was no going back for us. Um, mm-hmm. It ended up being where it would be on a given night. Uh, would go on there and, and we would still find stuff on stage to the point where even the cast, the ones who were loyal to her would grab things and put them on stage in the middle of shows and just drop things off and put it on there. It's like, you, you can't do that. Huh? And so, I mean, they the director didn't stay for the, I don't even think the opening night. I think they were allowed or encouraged to leave as soon as the majority of tech was done. It just ended up being a non-functional relationship there. But I just, it was very, it's something I use an example with my students of communication from the beginning is so critical because you can talk about exactly the same thing and you are not talking about the same thing. So you have to watch out for and design the word, the use of those abstract words that are personal to you, but they're not actually something you can there's, there's nothing to them. They're, they're an emotive word, but some of the problem solving we're having to do, it can't be emotive. It has to be more practical. Um, anything to avoid being sense. assaulted. Yeah, it was, it was, it was bizarre. I just, I'd never seen anything like that. Um, and to be caught in the middle of it. I mean, I laugh yeah. at it now, but it still was like, wow. Yeah. Jeez. Does anybody else have any horror stories they'd like to share? Or wonderful stories for yeah, that matter. Yeah, or wonderful stories. I don't, I don't have a horror story, but it is about a horror story. Um, <laughs> it was, uh, I have a particularly fond of a version of Titus that we did, which is, if, you know, if Shakespeare were to do Friday the 13th, it's Titus. Totally. Um, totally. Um, it's a slasher. We, we decided to do, uh, I learned this trick in class in grad school about color, learning about colored starvation, which is, um, our brains like to see a full spectrum of light. If, if one of the part of the spectrum is not there, we'll seek it out. And if we can't find it, we get upset. Um, get irritable, not realizing why we're upset. So um, we decided to do all of the scenes in a steel blue without any red and only use red when people got killed. And um, so what we would do is we would have these long scenes with no color and people couldn't find the color that they were missing, which was red. The red would come in and they would simultaneously be relieved and horrified because they're, they would they would psychologically be relieved because their brains were like, ah, red, ah, the full spectrum's back. I'm happy. Oh, my God, look what's happening on stage. Um, I love so, that. So we we did that. The only problem was during rehearsals, we were sitting in uh, cue to cues and texts for so long that we were getting irritable and we actually had to have full spectrum light breaks built into the afternoon where we would take a break and we would turn on all the lights full spectrum and say, okay, everybody just relax and bathe in the light for a little while. Then we're going to go back into our, our unhappy place. Is that why people, is that why people get depressed when they don't yeah. get enough daylight? Seasonal affective disorder. Spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. There's that. Um, but if you ever um, uh, are someplace where uh, you have a lot of blue light or something like that, if you consciously think about it, if somebody walks in with a red dress or if you're, you'll, you'll look at them maybe not knowing why. And part of that is that, like I said, if part of the spectrum is missing, your brain is looking for it. And you'll, so you can highlight, there's all kinds of things you can do with lighting. You can highlight some entrance that way. Um, and it was something I learned theoretically in grad school, and I wanted to try it and see if it actually worked, and it, and it, and it did. So. That's so interesting. The lighting is so, it's psychologically manipulative, but sound is like that, too. Oh, more so. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, what's I mean, one of your favorites? Um, 
we did Merchant of Venice a couple years ago with a uh, runway stage. So we had yep. it um, was fantastic. Oh, is it, it was one of my favorite Shakespeare's yeah. I've ever done, and uh, it was modernized to like a 1920s-esque feel to it uh, a lot of gangster-esque suits and it, it was it was great yeah it was it was phenomenal oh. um rich mahogany railing around uh the runway stage to make it feel like the courtroom scene uh at the end of the show um and one of my favorite cues that i built into it was at the start of the courtroom scene uh i put a grandfather clock that underscored the entire scene so you would just have this constant clicking that eventually you got used to since that scene is so long but then at the end when the judge rolls against shylock and shylock has to give up his faith um instead of taking the pound of flesh uh i cut out the the clock so it, it went from this constant drolling ticking over and over until this one tense moment where it just stopped and the only thing that was in the room was dead silence and i felt like that spoke more to what the situation was than any sound effect that i could have actually put in in that moment i have to say i'm totally really i'm totally cool. stealing that i'm totally stealing that <laughs> <That's great. laughs> And just think of all the shows that could work for it too. Absolutely. No, that's brilliant. And brilliant. The, I love the manipulation of the audience. You know, you're always looking for ways. That is, I love, I fucking love that. I, I wish I'd seen it. I think one of the coolest effects that I ever saw or worked with, uh, I was in a production of Hamlet playing a very small part and we didn't have enough actors to have the ghost. So somebody said, okay, we'll do some kind of special light sound effect for the ghost. And they went back and forth with lots of things. And this being a very marginal theater company, what they came up with was a box that they cut two sides out of and they ran strips of mylar back and forth. And they had it over the head of the stage manager and they shone a little green pin spot into it. And when the ghost was that they ran the tape of the ghost voice who was the director it was kind of appropriate uh she would reach up and grab the the uh, little piece of string and jiggle the box and the effect was of course that all of these little green fairy but spooky lights uh ran all over hamlet as he's talking and ran all over the people around him in his space and then it would stop so it was in and out and in and out of the scene. And it was really cool. And it was so cheap. It was sometimes, so easy. Sometimes the cheapest things are the most effective. Yeah, to be the most That's creative. It. I'm going to remember this. I want to put this in somewhere. Never make, done it. Make an artful yeah. use of what's at hand, right? Well, mm -hmm. watched a lighting designer once put lights on a, on a spring for an antenna in order and it was controlled by a, a, a stage manager in order to make it look like light was filtering through leaves of a tree mm. and so oh. it was with and it so it, it on the ground it actually looked like leaves oh. blowing through with it, but it was actually the light was vibrating on a spring never wow. it was just stupidly simple and clever and easy to do and worked yeah. wonderfully i love yeah. those those solutions are so cool yeah. yeah well this guys this has been unbelievably fascinating uh, i think this is actually one of my favorite episodes that we've recorded in a while uh it's great to have your perspectives i want to thank you so much so much for coming on today and we want to give you guys an opportunity if there's anything you're working on that you want to plug yes please plug away oh my, my latest gig is and i'm design i'm doing design consultation for portable grids for a, i've got a movement company i work with and a fine artist that travel around the city doing different festivals i was sculpting human faces out of wire mesh for the vision festival this last year my next gig is just to go out to jersey and see if i can help her convert a space into a, a magical land of all possibilities so nothing artistic yet but allows for the art to, to come flowing forth <laughs> Magical land of all possibilities sounds pretty creative to me. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Well, we will definitely have to have you guys on again, I think, if you guys oh, are willing great. to come back. This We'd was, love to have you back fun. sometime. Um, yeah, absolutely. Very nice meeting the other people that I haven't met and nice seeing the, the two people I know who I haven't seen in a long time. I, yeah, know. I want to come see, I want to come see your theater, does? Rich. Pandemic yeah, me too. people back together. I think that's so weird. That was completely my experience. So. Yeah. 
Me too. Thank you, hundred percent. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, Sounds thanks for inviting you. me. This was a, this was a fun conversation. This is great. And thanks Nancy, I'll me. see you at an impromptu meeting at some point when we're called. <laughs> I have no doubt. I'll let you know if I hear anything. Thank you. Oh, well, the same thing. If I know what shows we're doing, I'll let you know too. And our <laughs> listeners, um, if we will get, if anybody has a website, we will get that and we will put that in our show notes. So if you want to learn more about any of these fabulous people, you can go to the show notes and click on their websites. Um, and visit our website at www.thebardcastudick.com. If you have any extra money, we have links to Broadway Cares, Equity Fights, AIDS, and the Actors Fund. We also have a link to our PayPal, you know, because if you want to give us money, we're cool with that, too. Um, what else, though? <laughs> uh, join us next time. I'll, we'll be dropping again in a couple of weeks, as always. That's right. So, Shall guys, we try we, well, oh, we're, we are going to try it. Yes, maybe. Are we going to try it? Did. Are we going to yes. try to say the tagline all together, which we will uh, ultimately fail at, but we'll we try? We are. We have to try. So, guys, we do this every time. Yeah. I'm going to say, and remember, and then everyone's going to say all together, it's Shakespeare, you dick. Okay. So, we'll try. Ready? Ready? And remember, it's, it's Shakespeare, Shakespeare, you, you dick. dick. <laughs> <laughs> it's so hard awesome. to do it together on Zoom. I'm glad we have a sound guy here. <laughs> I take no responsibility. <laughs> Fair. preceding podcast was a production of Country Matters, LLC, copyright 2021, all rights reserved.